Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're at verse 4. And we've talked about this being a depressing book. And, and he's spent a lot of time about some depressing things. And, but we memorized the verse that we, that we have there in Ecclesiastes 12 to remind us that the conclusion in this life experiment that Solomon has of like, can we have a fulfilled life if there is no eternity? Can we live a life as if there is no God? And that's what he's trying to do, and he uses his life to do that. Can I just get everything I can? And that kind of explains a lot of how he lived his life, that that was his experiment. And the, his answer is no. Uh, you can't be happy in this life without God. You can't be happy in this life if there is no eternity, because this life leaves you wanting. You know, we, we, we feel shorted. Uh, we feel like I didn't have time. I don't know about you. I'd like to travel the world. I don't have time or money for that. I would like to. If you want to give it to me, I'll take it. No, but, but you know, we'd like to. But, you know, I console myself with, and I have since I came to know Christ with, well, one day, you know, I'll get to travel in Israel and see all that. And everybody over there is probably looking at a tomb saying, this is where Jesus was buried. And Jesus would be like, nah, it was over here. You know, so we'll at least get the right ones. You know, he'll take us to the right place and show us those things in, in the right context. And uh, I won't worry about dying from, from gunfire or, or roadside bomb or anything. I'll be able to see that. Um, I'm curious about Noah's Ark. Is it on the mountains of Ararat? You know, is it there? Can we see? I think we're going to go see. You know, we'll go see, and he'll tell us the story and, and travel around to all those places, and let alone other great events, missionary stories, and things that have happened around the world at different times. Boy, I look forward to that time. It's not going to be dull at all. And so I'd rest in knowing that we'll get to do that. I try to travel and see what we can now, um, but I know that I can't fit it all in. I can't fit in everything that my heart desires in this life. My heart tells me there is an eternity. You know, it yearns for it. It longs for it. And we've even said how God even said that. He's put eternity in our heart. It's one of the things he uses to draw men to him. Like, there's got to be more time. There's got to be a way. Our world's trying to do it today by saying that, hey, you can download your consciousness. Um, I didn't even get to this. A couple of weeks ago, I just went through some of the uh, uh, Advent things in the news, countdown to Christ's second return. Uh, there's a company that's put out now and has federal grants, your tax dollar at work, that says they think that they can capture a complete copy of your brain. And, and then they sell it as if they already have the technology to be able to put it on a backup hard drive. And then when AI technology comes around, they can reboot it and you'll basically be alive again. You'll live forever. Your brain will be captured in that way. The catch is it's 100% fatal. For them to capture your brain and put it in there, you die. You have to volunteer. And there's a waiting list. People want to live forever. Put me on that waiting list. Is it legal for me to do that? Download my brain, even though it kills me. Because they think they're going to get put right over into a Mac laptop, I guess, and, and be able to boot it up and be Max Headroom, you know, telling people to buy Coke. I, I don't know what they think. They think it's, it's a shortcut. There is no shortcut. There's one way. Jesus says, I am the way. And yet it's in people's heart, too. They want to live forever. Uh, maybe they'll be able to do, in China, they did a head transplant, took a head from one person to another. It was two cadavers, but they showed the technology was there. They're, they'll do it with someone live sometime soon. How's that work? I don't know. It's crazy. I think we're going too far, too fast, doing things we shouldn't. But the Bible tells us that that's what they're going to be doing in the last day. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things we could bring up about what is going on. And each week, I think that, boy, you can't get any worse. And it does. And so... Um, but, but eternity is in man's heart. We want to live forever. We, we know that. And, and Solomon, is, is, he comes to that conclusion all the time. Even though he tries to take that off the table, he comes to it. And so this week, it, it's not as much depressing as it is practical in that 
if you're just living for this life, he's going to tell you there's some ways that you, sh- you should go about it. Um, and it's a little odd to our ears in some places, but we'll try to pull some things out. But Ecclesiastes 4, <clears throat> verse 4, he says, Again, I considered all the travail and every right work that for uh, this is man and is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Better is the handful with quietness than both the hands with full travail and vexation of spirit. Um, he doesn't talk like you and I do. <laughs> because he's probably the wisest man ever lived, plus the translation and everything else. And so he says things a little bit different, but it's a short little section here that draws a common conclusion, and he uses three different things to do it. Verse 4 is about hard work. Verse 4, he says, um, Again, I considered all the travail and every right work, for this is a man... Uh, for this is a for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Uh, spirit. Uh, he's talking about hard work here. He's saying there's a neighbor, there's a guy who works hard, who has success because he does work hard. That's what travail there means. It doesn't just mean suffering. It means toil. It means work. This guy puts in the work, and he gets rewarded for it. And his neighbor envies him for him. Like, I can't believe he got a new John Deere riding zero-turn radius lawnmower. I can't believe he got a boat. I can't believe he got this. But this guy's working hard. You know, he's working hard, and so he's able to get what he wants in that way. You know, maybe he's working too hard for those things, but he's working hard. And he's like, don't envy him. You want it? You work hard. You know, it's like nobody gave that to him. It's not like it's just like, here's all this stuff you wanted. He's like, don't you sit here and envy him for those things. If you want it, work hard. You apparently he has more drive than you. And so basically he just says, don't envy. Envy means it makes you a little bit mad at someone or bitter at someone. Solomon says in this effect, you know, don't do that. Just work hard. You know, just work hard. You know, if you want it, do that. And so don't envy them. Don't envy what they're doing. Work. Uh, you know, a lot of people just sit around, I wish, I wish, I wish. And he's saying, don't do that. Work for it if you want it. Verse 5 is kind of the counter to that where he says, The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. This is about laziness. Uh, The Bible is full of verses about being lazy, about not working. And it always paints it in the same light. Like, don't don't be this way. You know, that's not, uh, this is a time to work. Heaven is a place of rest. He promises us that, um, but it's a place where we'll be rewarded from the toils of this life. But here and now, he says, you need to work. You know, you need to take care. It says that sleeping in and laziness, it says it will rob you of everything. It'll be just like an armed man coming and taking away everything you've got. If you don't get up and go to work, he says, you're going to end up having nothing, and you can't blame a robber, blame yourself. That's what Proverbs tells us. And Proverbs 13.4 says, the sluggard wants stuff, but he does nothing so he has nothing. He says, the sluggard can dream all these things, and that's a word for being lazy, a sluggard. You know, think how fast a slug is. And he's like, this guy doesn't do nothing. You know, he's just a slug. Uh, Morgantown, we were plagued with slugs. Uh, my mom and dad's house, growing up here in Trafalgar, I don't ever remember seeing a slug, you know, every once in a while. But man, we would have mammoth slugs. I'm not even kidding, like big old things. And somehow they'd get in the house sometime. And we had a kitchen tile floor. And I remember coming around the corner once with the light off, you know, probably getting a baby bottle and stepping on a slug and about falling down. You're talking about gross. You know, like being in a slug trail, finding down there. Uh, he did not run out of my way. Or maybe he did. <laughs> but he was a slow slug. Sluggard means lazy. He says, man, he wants stuff, but he's lazy. Uh, Proverbs 20 says, the sluggard uses excuses. 
Like, man, I should plow, but it's cold outside, or it's early outside, or it's raining outside, or it might rain tomorrow, or it might get too hot, and I don't want to do it. So he, he thinks of an excuse all the time, and it says it comes time to gather. He has nothing to gather. Now he's hungry, and he has to go beg. Because he excused away, like, it's too nice a day, or I want to go fishing, or I don't want to do this. And he never did put in the work. And he says, now he's going to have to beg. And the Bible uses these as an example as to work. You know, you're in this life, work. God has given us the abilities to work and not to be lazy. And here in Ecclesiastes, it paints a pretty graphic picture, especially in our day and age of zombies. It says here, the fool foldeth his hands together and he eateth his own flesh. That's kind of gross. The fool here is the lazy person. It says he eats his own flesh, consumes himself. In our language, I guess if we were going to update it today, we wouldn't use zombie language or he's eating his own flesh. We would say he's self-destructive. That's the same thing that he's saying here. This guy, you know, the, the fool is self-destructive. He's his own worst enemy. He causes all of his problems and brings the grief on himself because he's not working. He won't, doesn't want to work. He, he's lazy about it. And so he says here, he just folds his hands. Like, ah, I'll just sit back and relax. Next thing you know, he has nothing. You know, and so he uses this. So Solomon's like, <clears throat> don't envy your neighbor. Don't be lazy. Go ahead and work at it. And then he uh, tells us something else here in verse 6. He says, Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Uh, it says here, it's, it, this one's more cautionary. It's like, okay, yeah, work hard, but don't work too hard. You know, don't, don't make that your all-consuming thing. Um, basically, don't be consumed by your work. Just like the slugger can be consumed by his laziness, don't make work all that you do. Uh, yes, work hard, but don't let that be your only point in living. Uh, money, success, and having the John Deere zero return rating, radius lawnmower, and all those things. Uh, read this a verse again, more as in he's trying to say moderation. Verse six: Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. So, if you get too much, that could be the burden. That could drown you. All the stuff you've got can pull you down. It says work hard, but be content. That's pretty much a summarization, a summarization of, of that verse. It's, be content. Work hard. Have what you got. But don't be working so hard that it just consumes you. you know, be content with where you are. So these three verses are in a section pretty much you could summarize them if you put a bracket around them and make it be contentment. You know, don't be worrying about what your neighbor's got. Don't be, don't be too lazy. Don't work so hard. He's talking about being content. You know, and so he's like looking for happiness and answers under the sun. And he says, be content. Be content where you are. You know, work hard. Don't be lazy. Be content. Don't be, you know... Setting your, your goals to your standards too hard. But that moves into a next section about priorities that makes, that's about common sense. Uh, I think it's a common sense joy is what he's trying to tell us. Uh, a hint at eternity in God begins to creep in as he tries to describe these things without using those terms. Like I said, he tries to study life without eternity, without God. He uses the phrase under the sun, but he can't. I think it's because God makes himself hard to miss in everything we do in life. I think that's God's point. You're going to see me. I'm going to be there. You're going to see me. And when you don't want to see me, you're going to see me because why? He's drawing all men to himself that we might repent and trust in him. He's, he is the hound of heaven that's pursuing you. He's trying to get your attention, trying to get you to live for him and to focus for him because it's our own best interest at heart. Because then we have eternity. We have salvation. You don't lose your family members. We grieve them not being with us, but we know we'll be reunited later. And so God is trying to do our best for us. Solomon is an observer. I've spent 
a lot of times considering Solomon over the years and who he is and what he does for the different books that we've studied. And the Proverbs are full of his observations, which he, you know, said he asked for wisdom. God gave him wisdom, and I think that with that, it made him an observer to be able to take things in and to be able to figure things out. Sometimes he describes his, uh, his point of view, like from where he's observing these things. And, and I like to kind of think of him in certain circumstances as how is he learning this, you know? He's the king. You know, he, he doesn't worry about hard times. Um, does he ever disguise himself? Some would, some would say that he would disguise himself and go down and have experiences and then live certain ways. And, but Proverbs tells us, tells us some of it's from the vantage point of his kingdom, you know, from where he's sitting up on the high on the throne. Because uh, Proverbs 7 says, <clears throat> For at the window of my house I look through my casement. So that tells us that he's sitting up there and he's sitting on a window and he's probably in a taller house than most people. In my mind, I always picture him in a castle. I don't know that the Jews had castles, but probably the, the equivalent of their castle in their day. He's sitting up a little bit higher in the center of town, a better vantage point. He can look down on what's going around in the city, and he would look down and watch. And I don't know about you, but if you ever get in a tall building downtown in Indianapolis, uh, I used to have, uh, on my lunch, uh, we had a customer of uh, Vagary Baker Daniels, Daniels. It was a big law firm, and they were on the top floor. They had big, fancy windows, and pretty much they wanted you to go in there, especially if you're wearing Batman shirt and camos, to just drop it off and leave. But I'd get up there, and if it was just a secretary, I'd be like, can I go look out the window? And sometimes everyone's watching, she'd let me, because you look down and you watch these little ants moving around, all these people. And, you, you know, uh, other times I've been in tall buildings, you watch them, and you see somebody, oh, they're getting in their car. That guy's getting his bicycle. Solomon had that vantage point where he can watch people and what they're doing, and he watches this guy from the vantage point through his window, through his casement, he says, uh, <clears throat> says he's high up, and he's looking down, and he's watching these stories play out. He watches, because he's there every day, you know, he doesn't have to come in and ask for a second, you know, he can go and look out the window and watch every day, and he sees traps that are set up for some people, you know, scams that are being run, you know, suckers that are born every minute that come and get taken advantage of. He, he watches the routine play out again and again, and he gets wisdom from that, like, oh, that's what they're doing, that's a scam. And you never know what scam's being run. Because there's, there's scams you know, being run. Uh, when we were at the church on 31, you know, we had a lot of people that pull in there because it's easy and convenient and they would you know, ask for stuff. I remember a, a guy pulled in and uh, on the deacon board came out and said, oh, I, I just need some radiator fluid. And so we poured a little bit of radiator fluid in there, gave him the can because his car had a leak. He said, thank you, moved on. We're like, well, oh, that was good. Felt good, you got to help somebody out. They moved on down the line. Well, later that week, the pastor said he went to the uh, gas station and uh, they commonly went to, and he asked him, hey, how's it going? You know, I see anything weird? And the guy was like, yeah, that's also weird the other day. He said, this guy came in the station wagon, the whole back end was full of antifreeze. He goes, I ask him what he does with it. He goes, I get people to give it to me. I top it off with water, and I sell it to the dollar store. And it's like, he's going around scamming antifreeze from everybody. It's like, who would ever thought? It's like, man, if you just work hard instead of working hard, uh, not working hard, you know, you, it's just like, I'm like, well, I remember telling the pastor at the time, I'm like, well, don't be robbed. You know, we did it with the intent in which we did it in. You know, it's like that guy's one that shortened himself. You know, it's like you never know what scale they're running. But Solomon would want to watch these things and see what was going on. Uh, but Proverbs 7 says he watched a simple one come by. And he said this was a young one who was void of understanding. And he watched him fall into a trap that's going to cost him his life. And so, uh, so Solomon watches these things. And here in Ecclesiastes 4, he watches a lone man. He's going to watch a solitary individual, which makes me think that he's watched this guy for a while. Like he probably sees it's like, oh, it's 11. That guy's going to be going by. And he watches him go by, goes where it is. And I think with his kingly powers, he's able to say, what's this guy's story? And he puts someone out there to find out this guy's story and what's going on. And then he passes on this guy's sad story to us, verse 7. He says, then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. He 
he tells us at the outstart here that this man's story is empty. And he's going to describe it to us, but he says, no, at the outset, it's vanity, it's emptiness. It's like grabbing for wind. His life counted for nothing. Here's what he tells us, verse 8. <clears throat> there is one alone, and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches, neither saith he, uh, for whom do I labor, and uh, uh, bereave my soul of good. This is also vanity, yea, it is sore of travail. So there's a single guy, he has no wife, he has no children, he has no brother, only child. Parents must be gone. And so he fills, that, fills the void that he has with no relationships with anyone with work, with getting money. And it's like Solomon observes him and he says, this guy's diligent. You know, he, he, he's working hard. I'll give him that. But he stays focused on just that. He stays focused on being driven. It almost makes me wonder if Solomon doesn't see the way the, the vendor lady who gives him the apple every day is kind of like sweet on him. And he's like, why didn't he take a minute? You know, why didn't he take a minute? You know, and he's like, this could be a rom-com. They could meet there. It's a cute meet. They can go. They have this adventure together. And they live happily ever, ever after. And he's like, it doesn't happen. Because this guy's too focused. got to get to work. i got to get my job. I have no time. I have no time. And he says, man, if this guy would just stop and think for one minute, who am I working for? My heirs? I have no heirs. My wife? I have no wife. Who's going to get all this stuff when I die? He says, this guy never takes time to stop and consider, why am I working so hard to the point that he sees that he is his own worst enemy by working so hard? He says, yeah, work hard, but this guy never has fun. He can watch him, he can see it on his face. There's no joy in this guy. There's no happiness in this guy. He never allows for happiness. It's work, 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 work. You know, he's kind of like Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, right there and work, 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 and everybody work, you know, in that way. Never allows himself to have fun. He's like, I just don't understand why. He says, it's vanity, it's empty, it's nothing. So Solomon watches the man. He works hard. He has stuff. He's full of work, so he's not lazy. But it's wrong. We have a New Testament verse that's kind of like that. It's very akin to it, and it's in Matthew 16. We'll look at it real quick. Because Solomon's trying to say, this guy needs to consider the end. You know, He needs to consider that... You know, he's working hard, but if he has no one to share it with, what good? You know, he's not leaving it for family. If he's, even if he's like just working for this life only, at least if you worked hard, you could say, I'm leaving it for my children. I want my kids not to have to suffer like I did and have a leg up. That'd be one thing. This guy has no children. Or I want my wife to be able to live the lifestyle that we've always had. He has no wife to leave it to. He's going to leave it. And then Solomon's going to be, it's my problem. I have to come here with the people who's fighting for it and divide it all out. Jesus kind of talked about the same thing. He uses the same thought here Matthew 16 verse 26 he says for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul and what shall a man give in exchange for his soul it's like success is not the end goal riches or power controlling the world that sounds like oh you'd have it all then he goes man if you don't have eternity and you don't have eternity in mind so why you control the world for 30 years and you die and you go to hell forever that's a short change of deal there what if you have fame? Who cares? You'd sell your soul for a few years of fame? You know, I don't know. You ever notice at the end of like a news article, you always get those little sucker clicks down there, what they call them, uh, clickbait down there. It'll be like, do you remember so-and-so from, you know, family show of the 80s? And they'll have Gary Coleman there. And like, see what he looks like now. And you're kind of like, I kind of want to see what he looks like now. You know, it's kind of like, these, these guys, they, they never... Look better. <laughs> but, uh, it's always like, oh, they had their fame early, and then they've gone, and they're like, he's a you know, 
doing some job that you know, you're thinking, wow, I thought he would have saved better. I thought he had done better. It it's never turns out for the good. And yet this, so, so fame's fleeting. It doesn't last. But if you work for God, if you humble yourself, let him save you, you get eternity. No longer living lonely. All your life, you'll have stuff to accomplish for him. You know, and if you just work for this world, and even if you gain the whole world, Jesus says here, you know, what, what good's that? You know, it's not going to help you get out of hell. It's not going to do it for nothing. You can't bribe God. He says, that's empty. That's vanity. But if you work for the Lord, if you work for him, with him, with him in mind, God will satisfy. He'll be with you. He'll give you satisfaction in your work. You'll get to do it for others. Giving unto others. as you give to your, and, and, you know, The whole putting the others in front of you. God says that makes a difference and it's vital. It doesn't save you, but it's vital to living. It's vital to your next life. We work here and now for what our next life will be in that way. And so but if you're just living for here, you have no eternity. Your eternity is going to be suffering. He says we live knowing that there is an eternity. It makes it even better. He says, what, what good is it? What would a man exchange? He says, God says, Jesus there says, I know how it is when they get on the other side. They will exchange everything for their soul. If they'd only see that now. And that's what Solomon's telling us. You need to see that now. We need to realize there is an eternity. There is a God. And you need to do everything to make sure you're in there and you're taking as many people with you as you can. If not, it's going to be a very, very sad day. Now, let's go back to Ecclesiastes. And so uh, eternity does matter. Solomon can't get around it. and He's already hitting at it. And he'll get right on it here in just a minute. But, uh, so Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9, he says... After observing the lonely man, he comes to this conclusion. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their labor. He's like, if you just looked at it in terms of just you're living here and now and you're trying to live in your house, two's better than one. Divide and conquer. You know, he can go to work, she can keep the house, he can get home and have food. He'd have a minute rest of needing, maybe just sit and enjoy something and not just have to work, 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 you know, just to have somebody to share it with. It's companionship. Just have someone to talk to. You can see Solomon's compassion for this guy. He's like, he's lonely. And he fills that loneliness with work and it just leaves him lonely. He says, not only two better than one, you know, in that way is that, you know, makes work easier. Verse 10 says, For if they fall, then one will lift up his fellow, but woe unto him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath no other uh, to help him up. He says, it's smart. It's practical. You have somebody there to help you. Um, shutting yourself off to others is dangerous. I mean, literally, if you fall down, you have no one to pick you up. Or if you're just down and out, you have no one to encourage you. Tomorrow will be better. Shake it off. Here, go take a hot bath. I'll take care of the chores tonight. You don't have any of that. You know, but if you have a partnership, you have that. You're know, someone encouraging you, keeping you up. But I thank God for a spouse. You know? And I'm glad that in God's way of doing things, we're never down at the same time. There's always one who will be optimistic while the other one's down. I think if we're both down at the same time, we just sink. You know, but it seems like there's always, if there's one down, there's the other one up saying, come on, we can do this, or do this, or take your break, or, and encouraging one another in that way. It's one of the great things in the partnership and marriage. But if you literally fall, you know, that you would have help. You know, uh, if I go out, you know, my wife comes looking for me every once in a while. Where is he? You know, he's probably done something stupid, and he's hanging out of a tree or something like that. And you, know, you have that kind of help. Uh, Aaron Ralston, if you remember him back in 2003, did a foolish thing. He went out hiking by himself. Didn't tell anybody where he was going. Didn't even tell anybody where he was doing. He was out in Utah. If you remember, they've made movies about everything else because he fell. And as he fell, a rock fell too, and it trapped his arm against the canyon wall. 
No one knew where he was. No one knew he was there. So he hung there for six days. His hand smashed. He tried to chisel it with his head, one little utility knife he could get a hold of. He tried chiseling the rock and it would just slip down further. And his hand, he just pinned, trapped by his own hand. So after six days, he's like, there's no one coming. I mean, they were looking. They didn't know where to look. He didn't tell anybody where he was going. You know, he, didn't, he didn't tell any friends. He didn't tell any family. They didn't know. He was trapped there by himself. So he had to cut his own arm off. And by this time, he'd been chiseling for six days um, with this same utility knife that now had no edge. He talked about how he had to chew through his nerves with that. Yeah, it's gross. And then had to thrash around to get his arm to break, you know, so he could finally get off to make his way to a trail to, to finally get help. If he'd have told somebody or had somebody with him, yeah, it probably still would have been tragic and lost his hand, but man, it could have got recovered a lot faster. He made a video diary while he was going each day. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. But man, if he'd had help, you know, uh, there was a man, I think this was last week, that was out hiking, had the same similar thing. He didn't get his hand trapped, but he fell down. I think he broke his leg in a narrow ravine. And he only spent one night because he told his parents where he was going, what time he should have been back. And when he wasn't, they sent someone out there and they found him. They were helicoptering him out. He's like, whew, a lot better story than I had to cut my own arm off. And so, you know, just having companionship in this way and, and using that as smartness helps, Solomon says. Verse 11 says, not only that, he says, again, if two lie together, then they have heat. It's how one to be warm alone. He's like, it's also cozy. It's good to, uh, to have, a, have, a, have, a, have a wife to lay together and, and uh, just be able to keep warm. Verse 12, he says, And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and threefold cord is not quickly broken. So it's also better protection, knowing that there's two of you, you know, knowing that there's two that are going on. Uh, you can practice your ninja moves together. My, my brother and I had some, well, Batman moves back in the day, because in the 66 Batman, there was a move that Batman and Robin would do where they would back up to each other and they would lock their arms as the bad guy come, Batman would bend over and Robin would be able to kick him. Me and Brett had that down. Uh, Chad had no chance. Uh, but we do that. There's, there was another one where they would put themselves, <clears throat> they got trapped in the tower. Because there were two of them, they put their back together and they were able to walk out the top of the tower. We would do that in the door frame. But then when you got to the top, they're like, uh, we just fell down. But, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, but you, you, you have better protection. You know, they're both attacking me. You know, she can go get help. You, want you have a, a better chance. It's, you know. A single person is a lot easier for someone to attack than two people. And so um, two's just better. And he just goes through and lists some of the way that twos are better. And then he ends it with this threefold cord is not quickly broken. These are all famous passages. You know, two are better than one and the threefold cord. Uh, it jumps from two to three real quick. But if two is better than one, three is even better than two. You know, he adds to that. More work's done, more safety. Comfort increases. But who's the third here? God's plan is for a man and a woman to be together. They have children. Some, some would argue that. But you can't braid with just two cords. You know, if you put two together, you spin it around, and it unspins and gets that way. Don't ask me how I know. But uh, it spins out. <laughs> but you put three together, that's how ropes are made up. You know, they make a good rope in that way. The third cord helps hold the other two cords together. You know, it's something that they can weave around and they can go through. They're woven through their lives in this way. It helps them hold tightly. It helps things not unravel. So who's the third cord in this partnership of two? It's God himself. God himself, if you have a couple, and God's in that family as well, he says it's not easily broken. You know, it's a threefold cord is a consistent see through Scripture. God Himself is a threefold, right? You know, he's three. There's three. You know, we're, we're the best. You know, we have it. We're complete in that. And 
Elaine and I are complete in having God at the center of our lives and, and someone that we can weave around and weave through. A husband and wife and God is a bond that is not quickly broken. He's there to help and lift up even if you both are down and you have no direction. But he is there as an encourager, our intercessor, our advocate, pleading our case for us, knowing and watching and making all things work together for good. You know, those that love him, he is our help. He is our comfort. He is a core for your family nucleus to work around, to make stronger, to weave into your children's lives. He is our defender. He is our shield. He is a high tower that we can take refuge in. Talk about defense. We have him with us who knows all things and make them see all things. I don't have a security system on my house, but I do pray every time. I'm traveling, traveling wherever we go, and even in the morning, I'm like, Lord, put fear on them. Make them dread my house. <laughs> Make them see things and, and do it in that way. Well, There's one day Elaine was leaving and the car was pulling up. It's like a dead end way. And then she says, when I saw him pull out, I thought I saw him t- pull back in. Well, I can't get there in time, so I prayed the same thing. Lord, make him be afraid. Make him think Scooby's a bull mastiff. <laughs> Whatever it is, you'll put some fear in him to make him turn around and leave. And we, you know, they weren't there. Nothing was gone. And I'm like, I had to. I had to imagine all that was true, that they saw it all. You know, there was some big hulking thing. And did it. But God protects in that way. And so knowing that he is there, that we can call on. You know, when I can't get far, you can't get there fast enough, that we can turn to him. God is, a, God is a vital component to a marriage and to marriage life. Your work is not in vain if you're working with him. It weaves into your children. It weaves into your, your, your relationship together and what you do and who you serve and how you, how you do it. And that helps balance work and rest, knowing that he'll, take, he'll at least make safe. If you're, if you're honoring him and he's woven into your family, you're going to get Sunday, right? Because you're going to give it to him and you're going to let him be the driver of it. And he'll make you take a break where you get to sit down and not be so busy and actually uh, think about something else and reflect your mind and draw about eternal things. And, and he'll give you a chance to, to readjust yourself and like, be like this lonely guy who never took time to stop and think. You at least have an hour. If you just come on a Sunday morning, you have an hour to at least stop and think about him. And where am I going in my life? Am I pleasing him? Am I directed to him? Am I doing things right unto him? It's a considered life, and that is a life worth living. So he helps you balance work and rest. Helps you focus your attentions in the right place, the right goal, and to check your priorities. So yeah, threefold cord, it's good. Do you have him? Is he included in your lives? Does he help pull together everything you do because if it's in concert with him it will it'll help cinch it together and matter of fact it'll make it stronger it's not easily broken if not you just have a sloppy braid right well there's sometimes just us and then we might remember to weave him in and you got some gnarly mess hanging off the back of your head a braid that way or, or a cord that doesn't work very well you know because it's left him out for much of it but if we have him in the center and we're woven around him it's a good good cord that's not easily broken and Solomon says that's good don't be like the lonely guy, the selfish guy, the one who lives for himself and he only harms himself, consumes himself. Be the one who considers others, lets others in. And that's why we fellowship. And that's why we're here. And that's why we're to have God in our marriage and in our families and woven into everything because he's there for our help and for our good to help pull us together tightly. Let's close in prayer.